Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. I'm Melissa Salvin. I'm here with Rachel Woody, and we're interviewing Lynn Chamberlain of Spofford Station Vineyard on July 17th, 2014. So Lynn, the first question, why wine? Wow, why not? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Actually, it's a little bit of a story. I uh, grew up in Walla Walla and left as soon as I graduated. And uh, my first job out of college, I was trained as a deaf educator and an autistic specialist. And I also had a degree in special education and elementary education. So I had this lineup of things to do. First job was in Washington, D.C., the very first year of forced busing. Quite an experience for a girl from Walla Walla because I couldn't figure out what the big whoop was. But I ended up in a special ed class and uh, I was there for 13 years. The second year I was there, my cousin from OMAC, which is even worse than Walla Walla, showed up and said, I'm going to live with you guys and go to college here. So he did. His first job out of college was Napa Valley. And he became a financial planner for wineries. So we're 21, 22, 23, and he called up and said, you guys have got to get out here. There's free alcohol everywhere. (laughs) So I started actually visiting for fun, but as time went on, with his background, I was able to get in the back rooms of wineries. I helped bottle. I was able to start understanding tasting and how things were done. So then my next stop was, well, I used to be on a farm. I bet I could farm grapes again and decided to return. Okay, okay. And can you, can you speak a little bit about your, your family's um, roots? Mm-hmm. Sure. My, uh, we have, we're a third generation farm here, or third generation family. My grandfather had racehorses. He was actually a mortician by trade, but he had a farm. And he raised wheat, a really small farm, so wheat, alfalfa, sugar beets, and uh, racehorses, quarter horse racehorses. And uh, he was, was, as I said, a gentleman farmer, but we were out there with horses all the time. He was the, he started, helped start the paramutual paramutual bedding at our fairgrounds, which has just now, in the last year, gone out. But, um, so I was around horses and farms all my life. When I was growing up, there were not fast food restaurants or places for young people to get jobs. The only jobs were on the farms. So I would be deposited, let's say my 15, 16, 17 year, I would be deposited out in a place called Eureka, which is 45 minutes away, no car, eight weeks on a wheat farm. And it it has great meaning now, but at the time it was a pretty long way away from home and I couldn't go out and I had no dates and it was not fun. And I was determined then to never be back here on a farm. Uh So I had seven brothers and sisters. My sisters all rode horses. We all did. And we actually had ponies, a special pony called a Pony of the Americas. We traveled all over the country doing shows. So we had a pretty, pretty exciting background. 
So that's basically it. Um, at this point, all of us left home. I think every child left Walla Walla. And now there are three of us back. Oh. So it's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. And I know you initially started out um, with a wheat and pea farm. Mm -hmm. And then you started, you converted to mint and then grapes. And then you have, when did the Cabernet House come into the story? Well, and I will digress just a oh, little please. to kind of put that on there. We started out, I purchased this little farm as a, it was already a pea, wheat and pea operation. Okay. And uh, so I just kept on with that until I kind of got my feet under me as to how to farm. Even though I worked on farms, I was never responsible for farms. So that was a whole different ball game. So I learned the wheat and peas and I was out searching for the next crop that would be really fun and exciting to do. And I was interested in grapes, but I wasn't sure that I could afford to put them in yet. Mm -hmm. So we uh, looked at cottonwood farming and mint farming, two or three different things, and came up with mint. So I have three greenhouses, that, and I became certified as a foundation block mint grower. And I created an area called a, a specialty area where no one else can grow the product because they have to be free of all disease. So this mint farm, I started with uh, greenhouses where I propagated uh, ver verticillium free mint, they call it. Mm -hmm. And they were checked by Oregon State. Every quarter they'd come and we had um, you know, lab coats and clean hands and everything was absolutely phyto, uh, phytogenic. Mm -hmm. And then the second stage was to plant those in the ground. And the third stage was to create oil. So peppermint oil, like Wrigley's or you know, whatever okay. you think of that you put mint in, have flavors, just like grapes do. And our flavor here in Walla Walla is the thing that is used for a lot of the gums and that sort of thing. So the ones that are in the Willamette Valley might be for um, you know, seasonings, for example, but they're really specific flavors. So that's how I got started. And then um, about the time the mint was really getting big, I would do five, six, seven hundred thousand plants a year in the greenhouses. Then it was about ready to start the grapes. I'd studied, learned how to do them, and then we just started putting a crew together to build vineyards. Okay. So while those came into play, which was about three years, I continued with the mint. Okay. And so the, the vineyard was started in 1998? 1998. Mm -hmm. okay. The first year we planted 15 acres, 20 acres, Cab Merlot Syrah. And the next year we planted another 15. And back then I was embarrassed to tell anybody in the valley that I only had 30 acres or 40 acres because around here wheat farms are thousands right. of acres and I didn't want to humiliate my family or myself. And so we got about to a 40 acre range, maybe 45, and I finally, I had, to, I had to tell the Wine Alliance how many acres I had. And when I told them, it turns out I was the second largest grower next to the consortium of Pepper Bridge, uh, Leonetti, you know, the, they have a group together. Well, I was the next big, biggest farmer. Wow. It was really kind of fun. Wow, that's great. Now I know, um so you started the vineyard in 1998, mm -hmm. um, but you also were one of the charter students of the viticulture mm -hmm. and enology program exactly. at the CC. And that was started, I know the institute was founded in 2000, mm -hmm. but, um, and the, so the teaching vineyard wasn't up and running until 2002. Right. So 
So what happened there was that I was elected, uh, uh, formulating the Walla Walla Valley Wine Alliance is really important because it created a precedent for growers and winemakers to work together. In every other uh, community, as far as I know, I mean there might be some remote one somewhere, but in California and New York, all of those areas there are wine associations and uh, winemaker and grower associations and never the twain shall meet. And here, we, we actually uh, 30 years ago designated the Appalachian, but the, the actual organization started somewhere in the early 90s. But it was very loose and I didn't really get a sense that anything really happened. Mm -hmm. So in about 94, 93, 94, or 92 I think it was actually, right in that range, we decided, a group of people decided to actually start a real organization here. It was time to get Walla Walla on the map. And I'm telling you there were there was controversy from the beginning because winemakers did not want to have those growers in the same pocket with them because then they'd be asking for higher rates on their grapes. Mm -hmm. And they didn't really want to have that. They needed to have a business association. And very wise minds, much wiser than mine, and I'll, I'll give the likes of Norm McKibben and Rick Small were the ones who stood tall among others and said no. We need to work together. We are very small here. We want to grow good quality and we want quality people and we want an association to be proud of that the rest of the world is going to look at. Otherwise, we're no different than anyone else. So they absolutely stood strong and were able to have, we had meetings after meetings after meetings and finally, by whatever the margin was, we put together a grower and winemaker association. And that still, I think, is the only one that's really prevalent. Wow. And it has made us, because we have learned, if nothing else, a very simple thing, and that is we're very small, and so what we do better be so good, high quality, with integrity, that we get noticed. And by gosh, we have. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you're aware that in this last year, wine enthusiasts select Walla Walla as the, one of the top ten wine destinations in the world. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's what a, what a great thing. So it has paid off. Wonderful. So back to your question, I think I have a tendency to... Yeah, no, that's great. That's <laughs> great. Well, I know it's interesting you say that because um, some, some people we've interviewed have talked about the Walla Walla Valley Wine mm. Growers Association mm -hmm. as being the precursor to mm -hmm. the Walla Walla Valley Wine Alliance. But, that's right. But the information that you're providing provides, that's really helpful the to crossover. understand the connection. So back to this college now. So I was on that board. I was selected to be the first grower representative and so being on that board, I was hearing all that was going on on all the political sides. And Miles Anderson at that point was trying to get monies to start a viticulture and enology program. So we were hearing just the basic workings of what was going on. And um, so he, he was looking for, he had to submit curriculum. So he was looking for people to practice on. Okay. So I became one of eight students and we took courses from him. And he would teach a lesson, and we would take a test, and if we all flunked, we'd go, boy, you are awful. <laughs> Not really, but you know, that's how he developed his curricul curriculum, was utilizing the actual students. So I was in that prototype class. Once they got their funding, which was in 2000, I believe it was. So the prototype class was before? Before, okay. 99, probably. Okay. So then Stan Clark was hired 
and he began the actual program. So I, be, I, I took the next two years under Stan Clark. Now at that point I was a vineyard only, but I was seeking to be a better grower and I thought if I was learning what the winemaker wanted, I would ostensibly be a better grower. Mm -hmm. So that was why I really wanted to be in the class. But then once I got into the winemaking side of it, it was like, hmm, I have all this wine grape. I have to utilize it. So, and it happened that my son was getting married that year. And so I pulled back Merlot and that was my project. And I made a barrel of Merlot for his wedding. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was pretty fun. So once I get into that phase, boy, it's like baking. It's so much fun to have access to all of these fun grapes. So right after that, 2004, I planted Carmenere, Petit Verdot, Malbec, Semillon, Viognier, Tempranillo, Cab Sauve, or I mean Cab Franc, and Sangiovese because I just wanted things to play with. It was very fun. Wow. So yeah, it's really nice to, to have both sides of it. Uh -huh. Then I continued working with the college as a mentor. I donated grapes and worked with students for a couple of years. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Do you remember, Lynn, who any of the other charter students were who, who studied? Oh, wow. Melinda Eden was one. Um, and she was kind of semi-part-time because she was working in Portland a lot. But Melinda Eden, uh, else was in that class? You know, Miles would have a list. Okay, yeah, that's great. That's I don't great. know why I'm blanking now, but... Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. There were eight. <laughs> okay, okay, that's, that's great. Now, I know you are past chair of um, the Washington Association of Wine Growers. Yes. And can you tell us a little bit about what, what kind of function um, that organization has and what kind of vision you have for it? I know we were talking about this earlier. Mm -hmm. Well, it has very strong, powerful visions for farming grapes. It's, it's ostensibly a grape growers association. And I do have the seven list of tenets. I thought about bringing them down, but basically it's to educate and not just educate ourselves as farmers, but to make sure that our staff, a lot of whom are Hispanic, have training in Spanish by, you know, so that they are learning what the purpose of this all is. I mean, we've spent a lot of years just telling people, go do this, go do that. But these people are learning, and we've developed a program for Hispanic. It's actually not just Hispanic, but anyone can do it. But it's in Spanish, and it teaches things like safety and forklift driving. It teaches tractoring. It teaches soil types and all of the things that go with that. Um, it's, it's a place for developing leaders who can then continue farming in a very proactive way, learning how to work with legislators and, you know, our governments so that we can preserve farming as a as a lifestyle which is always at risk mm -hmm. we are at a point now where major cities are so compacted with people who don't understand where their food comes from mm -hmm. and I'll give you one example because it's a really poignant one last year um, Washington state legislators had put before a, a group of them not all of them a, a group put forth a bill that would not allow, that chemical spraying would only be allowed under certain conditions, which we call crop protection, by the way, not chemicals. So here's how this one looked. If you live within one mile of a farm, you can't spray. So if a house is within one mile of a farm, okay. you can't spray. And I just want to remind you, you're sitting on a farm house, 
and my farm is all around me, I would not be allowed to spray. I have to put a sign up on the roadways two days before, 48 hours before I spray, to warn anybody who might go down my road. Okay. Now in spraying, today would be a perfect day except it's too windy. Mm -hmm. So if I had my signs out two days ago and it's windy today and I can't spray, I have to start all over again. Meanwhile, too many days like that and I don't have a crop. Uh, it, because there are pressures, right. infestation and you know, that sort of thing. Uh, let's see, there were, you cannot live, I, I think I mentioned that, within an, uh, a mile of a vineyard. Mm -hmm. So we have two developments in Walla Walla. On Bernie Drive, there is a vineyard development of million dollar houses all nestled within little small vineyards. Mm -hmm. They can't take care of their crops and the people who live in there have to leave. I mean, it, there's just no solution for things like that. Mm -hmm. And then the second part of that is then you have the destruction of the crop that you're trying to raise. Mm -hmm. So w what we did as a, a, a group, a hopefully a positive group, is we went to the people who wrote the bill who were absolutely against having any crop protection at all, and we brought them over here. We, fortunately, they agreed to come over here. Mm -hmm. you know, put your money where your mouth is. Let us show you what you're talking about. Right. We took them to several farms and we showed them the problem with it. And they were wonderful. They had no idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just goes to show you, you, you know, so proactive working right. to help people understand where your food comes from and how to do a better job. So we helped them with some of the tweaking of that. I mean, I, you do have to monitor but that sort of thing. Training young leaders, that was kind of my focus. I, um, I was on the board for maybe five years and I started noticing the really wonderful people who are predecessors in the grape industry started getting off the board. You know, they'd been on there 10 years and they were tired of it. And quite frankly, I looked around me and thought, oh crud, I'm next. <laughs> what, you know, we gotta, we've gotta bring young people up and start getting them up in front of us, getting involved, being speakers, being leaders, training them, giving them what they need. So we developed the Young Leader Program so that we can help young people get moving through the system and be better farmers. Most, a lot of them are either working for their parents or have relatives or whatever in this area. Mm. So that's, that's part of what we do. Great. A little too much? No, that's great. That's wonderful. <laughs> Um, so in, in 1995, there were 11 wineries in the Walla Walla Valley. And by um, 2000, this year, you know, it, the numbers fluctuate, but around, sure. around 120 with around 1,600 acres of grapes. Um, so what, what do you make of these changes? I mean, certainly it's a scale, mm -hmm. you know, but, but what are your thoughts on what that signals about the wine industry in Walla Walla? Well, it signals that we are a really great place to be. Um, the, the number, as I'm understanding it, and this will fluctuate a little bit, the 120 is bonded, mm -hmm, right. but there are wineries. There's 150-ish more, I mean, not more, uh, in addition to make the right. 150, who are bonded and making wine, but they don't yet have a product, mm -hmm. so there's no storefront. Right. So this is huge. Now, what I make of it is that we're a really great place. This is a great growing region. There's huge opportunity. Now, it will happen that there will be fallout or there will be changes. 
and probably it will settle out, but we certainly are not going to be a little Napa. We are not on the way to anywhere. If someone is coming to Walla Walla for wine, they are captive. They want to be here. They want to spend their weekend here. And so far, my experience is that they love it. Uh -huh. I think it's fabulous. And we have so many things to offer that people don't realize. Mm -hmm. We are the seat of all government. Before there was a state, there was the territorial governor's mansion right here, mm -hmm. which is owned by band member REO Speedwagon. I mean, that in itself is cool. We have fabulous architecture. All the Indian treaties were signed right here. The rendezvous is here. And I'm finding my wine customers, every time they come, take an event like that or take a piece of the Walla Walla history and spend time learning it. Uh -huh. It's really fun. Oh, so cool. I think it's great. I think it says we're doing the right thing. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I know I indicated this earlier. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts about what it's like um, being a, a woman who's a winemaker in Walla Walla. Um, I find personally, now maybe I have a personality that just bulldozes, I don't know. Um, I really find that there isn't any kind of discretionary difference. Okay. You earn your stripes by the quality that you present and the way you present yourself. And I have not seen anybody say, well, it's just a woman. now. There are physical things we don't do as well, and so, you know, I have, hey, you get that bar, you know. <laughs> but I think uh, women are driving forklifts, women are, you know, doing their own chemistry, they're, they're doing everything that a man is doing. And I do think this industry, and especially in Walla Walla, is very progressive. It's not corporate yet. Mm -hmm. Not that corporate's bad, but when you have to do everything yourself, you find fraternity and getting help. And that's what I did. I, you know, I called up friends of mine and I said, what is a plate in frame? I don't understand. Uh -huh. And they would show me. And so, I mean, we just all worked together. And then they'd make me do their dirty work. Nice. So it, I, think, I think it's really very innocuous here. There's nothing going on that would suggest that there's any kind of discrimination if that's where you're going. Uh, no, I mean, it's, I mean the, I'm just thinking about the sense of community. Very, very much a sense of community. Okay, yeah. that's wonderful. I mean, even among, I know you mentioned earlier that you were sort of part of the third wave, mm -hmm. um, and you have the, the first wave, you have um, Figgins mm -hmm. and Small mm -hmm. and Baker Ferguson. Mm -hmm. I mean, is, is there like a connection? I know some, like, I know Baker is no longer here, but, um, the f sort of first wave, um, are they definitely, you know, aware of everyone who's in the later generations and, and supportive of these efforts? I mean, what is that kind of dynamic like? Or is it you're more working with people who are from your same generation? Um, no, is the short answer. We all work together. I suppose it really depends on the person, sure. but I'll give you my example because it's, it's a fun one. So, um, two gentlemen, elder, they weren't really old, but elderly-ish gentlemen getting ready to retire uh, were doctors in Walla Walla. One was named McClellan, mm -hmm. Dr. McClellan, and one was named Dr. Hendricks. And they were knocking around what to do if they were going to retire one time and decided, you know what, let's, I've always wanted to do grapes. Somehow they got onto that conversation, so they decided to do a vineyard. And so they started this vineyard in like 1977. I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time. 
and I came home from my sister's wedding and she was marrying Casey McClellan's brother, Mike. So now I'm into this and I'm hearing these two old guys talk about vineyards and I'm going, what? <laughs> so, you know, they then had fruit and nobody to sell it to. So it was like Baker was retiring from the bank and they somehow got all the wine put together through him and before you know it, you've got this little group going and everybody thinks they're crazy. Meanwhile, Gary Figgins and Rick Small and the stories for them are really fun. I was younger than they were, but you know, little kids pick up on lots right. of stuff. They, in fact, I, I, I have these jobs, lots of jobs, but one of my jobs is a realtor. And I sold a house that Gary Figgins used to own. And when I was going in one of the rooms in the basement, it has wine stuff all over it because he and Rick Small used to make the wine in this basement. Wow. So there's all these little clicks things that are going on. But when uh, Rick and probably, I think it was actually um, Gary that submitted the Merlot to Wine Spectator and got 93 points. There was Pat Mike Paul, Patrick M. Paul. Mm -hmm. He lived across the street from Gary Figgins and he was a little, a little neighbor. He was younger by several years. And he idolized Gary. And so he went out in the back, he read about fruit wines. And so he, he would pick berries and make wine just so he could be like Gary. Wow. So, and Gary has been a really good partner to him as he got older. Unfortunately, he passed away from a sudden, very bad problem, but um, Gary has remained great friends and helped his winery stay intact until it was time for you know all of it to end. But all these little relationships right. are huge. So when I came back and started to get in the wine, the first thing I did was go back to the doctor and I said, how did you get into all this? What did you do? I mean, and Norm McKibben is another one. Always just very, very ready to tell anything he knows, go see this guy, do this, do this. I mean, they're all very open and readily available. And at least from my perspective, I've had no issues getting help. Uh -huh. So it's very good. That's great. And that history is important. Right, right. That's wonderful. Well, the, I'm, that's great, Lynn. I'm going to, to pass it off to Rachel now. Okay. Um, all right. So we're going to sort of transition now into bigger picture okay. and more about the location and then sort of thoughts for the future. Okay. So my first question for you, Lynn, is what is this region known for? What is the identity? In the wine world? Wherever you want to take the question, but yes, in the wine world and, and sort of Walla Walla also in general if it's not related to wine, if you have sort of a different answer for that. Well, interestingly, I'm not sure how to answer, and I do know a lot about the area. Walla Walla was um, somewhat, now this is a young person's viewpoint. When I would come home from Washington and come to Walla Walla, those beautiful buildings you see right now weren't there in my head. Because back then, 50s, probably 60s, 70s, 80s, they had put like plywood, this is my head saying, I don't know what they really were, but like plywood sheets over all of that fabulous brick. Mm -hmm. And there was bright paint and a big sign for the logo of whatever the store was because everyone was modern, you know? Mm -hmm. All the streets were going the same way, one way this time. The next time I came, they were one way the other time. And then somewhere around the nine, early 90s, somebody 
I don't know who because I was just coming back myself. Mm -hmm. Somebody very smartly decided it would be important if Walla Walla was going to survive to get an outsider to give us ideas for how to make this town come back. Mm -hmm. I mean, after all, this was the seat, the governor's seat of the territorial um, governments. And in fact, may I digress just a minute because I never finished this little piece. So Walla Walla was the territorial governor's location and when they decided to separate out the states, um, there, there was an Oregon and a Washington and an Idaho and you know, it started coming together. Mm -hmm. But Walla Walla being the first, or being the, the strength of the, uh, the whole picture because we had the Ford here, became first choice. We got to be first choice in what we wanted. So they determined that every state should have a land-grant university Every state should have a prison. Every state should have um, a, a, what are some of the other things that we used to have? Think of those five big, th uh, uh, you know, basic things that you need. Sorry, mm -hmm. I'm flailing on this one. Well, we had first choice as the point. And the point is that we picked the prison. Can you even imagine? No. So you have to think about politics back then and whatever caused that. But we then, we did get to be the first state capital. From here it went to Spokane, and that's when they decided to take it to one location and not move. I think it did go to Seattle once. Then finally Olympia was designated. So our whole region was trying to develop how this was going to look. So Walla Walla now has the prison, and you know, I don't know what else. I wasn't around back then, but my grandparents were. So then, Fast forward to this town that had all these buildings, they changed. Um, all of the treaties for the Indians were done here, the rendezvous were done here. This was the seat of everything, still. Mm -hmm. And um, they hired a man named Timothy Bishop who had done downtown foundations for a couple of other places and won some awards. He was strong enough, one, to try to positively work with the community to change. And he was poking around some of the buildings and discovered that behind that, whatever it was on the front, there was some brick. So one building agreed to take off all the stuff and oh my goodness, it was fabulous with these, even the original glass was in the windows. Mm -hmm. So he was able to come up with grant money from the, I think it was the federal government, so that if this, the shop owner would agree to do this much, then the federal government would give money for this much. And those buildings started peeling back their very plain exterior and we saw this fabulous city that I remembered. So that's one really important thing mm -hmm. that happened. And if you were to to shift focus to the Walla Walla Valley AVA, what would that identity be, or what's its identity to you? I think Walla Walla AVA is known for one, really high quality. Mm -hmm. I think universally that's what people would say. And then secondarily, I hear this when I, I because I've been in some leadership positions, I travel to other states and I hear what they say. It happens also that our particular organization has people at the national level in every committee for, the for all of GRAPES, all of the ABAs, and they say we are 
very fraternal and cooperative. They can't even believe how we all get along. Mm. And I believe that that's what we're known for. We're known for our cooperation, we're known for our collegiality, and we're known for high quality. And I think we're learning, we're getting to be known for our fabulous little town. Mm -hmm. I mean, we might not have a lot of what we have, but we have fabulous food, cute little restaurants, fun events. I mean, it's just, it's fabulous. We love it. And we use our old buildings. Mm -hmm. What are some of the strengths and challenges of having a cross-state AVA? Oh, boy, did you have to hit that one. When I grew up, my, one of my best friends lived next door, on the farm next door. He went to Walla Walla High School. There were seven or eight guys from Oregon in Walla Walla High School. And uh, we went back and forth when we worked in wheat. You just drive your tractor across the road and everything was cool. So when I was looking for farming, I'm, and I was specifically grapes, I was studying what I was hearing at the Wine Alliance level, which was that the further south you go into Oregon and east towards the mountains, you get the breezes from the mountains, which always keep mold, mildew, and freeze moving. And you have the rocks in Milton Freewater where you can get into that really rich, earthy mm -hmm. zones. And um, I had not an inkling of an issue related to Washington and Oregon or any states. Mm -hmm. How silly am I? So I bought this fabulous little farm and the first thing that happens is my children, I had, um, I raised six children and they all drove combines one particular year. And, and one of the coolest things we did is my father-in-law had never had a female driver, ever. And we had four girls. All of the girls drove combines. And at first he was a little shaky about it, but he, <laughs> you know, we were taking over. So we had four girls and the two boys plus our other people. And I have this fabulous picture of the combines all staged going down a hill. Mm -hmm. He professed at the end of the year how, what time he wasted because the girls had the best safety records and did the best job of taking care of their combines. So, very cool. Anyway, we have all these kids out here and they have to carry licenses for both states. So you're driving a combine, you have your license for you know, Washington, Oregon. Somebody always left their license in their back pocket in the laundry. Mm. They would cross that state line because we had other farms we were working for. Mm -hmm. And you'd get, you know, I don't even know what it was, you know, $300 ticket. And you know, kids do that all the time. Right. So we start there. I moved out here just a year ago. I have been in Walla Walla because I see myself as a Washingtonian. So I've had Walla Walla wines. I've bottled in Walla Walla. I've worked in Walla Walla. And I decided I really wanted to downsize what I was doing. I was doing way more than I really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to really enjoy. I'm a person that likes talking to people in the tasting room. I don't like to just sell them wine. Right. I want to tell them why I like doing what I'm doing. And they seem to want to hear it. So I moved out here to downsize, make it a little closer, a little more intimate. And the first thing that happened the very first year is, well, I shouldn't say that. The, the first year I had started moving things over, but I didn't get here for the third year is when I finally moved in. So I started moving wine over and mm -hmm. trying to build buildings to put things in. 
So the first year I'm here, which was last year, so somewhere in the fall, I get a letter from the Oregon Liquor Control Board fining me for three years of back taxes and a litany of things I can't even understand today. Mm. But basically, apparently, every time I would move wine from one state to the other state, they would tax me. So Washington taxed me when I sell it. They would tax me when I'd move it over here. So I would get taxed twice. Mm -hmm. And that is replete. That's going on. It's just a mess. They don't cooperate at all. And they don't in farming either. We're getting to the point now where if I cross the road with my tractor, it has to be completely overhauled for bugs or anything that I might be transporting into Washington. So it's very difficult. The states do not get along. Has, has that gotten worse? Yes. Is that the, gosh. Mm -hmm. You know why? And everyone knows why. This is a, a redundant statement. But states are poor. Mm. and they want money and they're taking money however they can why would those people wait three years and then you know it's things like that are happening um, I pay a tax on the grapes I sell so I sold grapes to St. Michelle winery and they agreed to pay the tax on it because of the price I mm -hmm. quoted them so it's now six months since the last, almost uh, nine months since the last harvest. I just got another huge fine from Oregon because somewhere in their book, this fat uh, that I'm supposed to read, uh, you know, it's like analogous to RCWs, it says that corporations cannot pay my tax. I have to do it. So rather than tell me when they got the paperwork, which I know they saw it, we discussed it. Mm -hmm. They waited nine months to fine me, and I have late fees on top of that for every day that. They didn't get back to me. Whoa, wine, wine, wine. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's sorry, but it's really bad. We've got right. to do something. I don't know who's going to carry the flag, but this all has to work out if, if people are going to actually be able to make money and have a mm -hmm. living and mm -hmm. cooperate. Right, especially for an area that prides itself on the identity of the valley. Mm -hmm. And you see, that's what's cool about Walla Walla. So I'm going to do this little number. This mm -hmm. is our Appalachian. It's in Oregon. We love each other. We mm -hmm. want Milton Freewater and Walla Walla to do things together. You know, we aren't the problem. Right. So it's, uh, it's just one of those things. Right. Well, thank you for, for sharing the, the strengths and the challenges piece. It's I can't believe how prohibitive it, it is. is. It's very much so. Mm -hmm. So we're going to bring it to a bit of a closure. I have a couple questions left for you. Mm -hmm. uh, the next one is, what advice would you give to a new winemaker or what has been some of your lessons learned from all of this? Oh, several. I am one of those people that learns on the fly. Mm -hmm. You know, why wait and read it? <laughs> Um, learn the rules mm -hmm. and unfortunately the education is they literally hand you the book that's this thick and say read it and I did I read it like all, all night and you know but it says RCW code double Q those little funny things mm -hmm. 12 lines of this and then it says something that you can't really understand anyway because it's written in legalese mm -hmm. and you I'm you're accountable for it so learn those laws I think also, I don't want to be the guy, but I think we as an association need to start putting our state at task 
for responsibility. I mean, what is, what is, what is reasonable for someone to know? You can't right. just find people and say you didn't do it right. right. Somehow, and we do take classes, but the classes are simple. They are how to spot an al uh, somebody who's overindulging, mm -hmm. how to you know fill out your paperwork. But it's really, I think the states are failing us right now, and we're a really strong point in the picture. Right, of course. So I don't know how to do that, but something has to change. Definitely. All right, well, between Melissa and myself, is there anything that we should have asked that we didn't? Yes, I want to tell you something. All right. So, <clears throat> I live right here in this little corner of the, you know, right here in this little valley area. And this is those beautiful blue mountains mm -hmm. that we talk about. So, and I've, you may have heard this, but about, this is all of Walla Walla, about 36,000 years ago, a huge ice dam built up in the Clark Fork of Lake Missoula. So this ice dam, and that's when the ice backs up, and then when it melts, it everything floods out. Mm -hmm. Well, it did this, this huge ice dam did this in Montana, and it came through the Pacific Northwest side of um, the Spokane area, came down through, it went hundreds of ways, but just let's just do a one way. It came down through the Blue Mountains, and it caused it to do a turn, which went on to scab away the Columbia River Gorge. They say it was going 200 miles an hour, so that when it hit the ocean, it was going so fast, it caused this bathwater effect, which then brought it back through Walla Walla, through Wallula Gap, that's what created that gap. And then it flowed, and this is particular to my farm now, it flowed right down until it hit the mountain and then settled here. So I grew up around here, I used to party in the barn over there. And this farm, I didn't know until I purchased it, but it is, it has huge deposits of all of that backwash. So a good farming topsoil is two to six feet. Walla Walla is full of that, it's like a bread basket. This farm is 30 plus feet. And this whole corner of the area is called Historic Lake Lewis. It was underwater for 30,000 years as Lake Lewis. And so now I buy this farm and I'm learning all kinds of fun things. So I don't live in the rocks. Is it okay if I get up and move around? So oops, I just want to get a couple of things. So every, I have a normal vineyard, not a rocks vineyard. My normal vineyard is that I go down the rows and there's dirt, you know, and little, well, every once in a while and every day, you'll find something just that has unearthed itself overnight, it wow. seems. So this is a basalt pyroclastic rock. This one is really cool. It's called diorite granite, and it's a compressed volcanic diorite and granite. And when my kids were combining one time the wheat, they hit a rock, and that happens often, not every year, but almost. And so everybody stops, and you get your neighbors, and everybody digs it out. This diorite, that this one that was out there, was five feet in diameter. It was huge. Wow. I was building my house, and I wanted to use it for countertops. Yeah. <laughs> but when we tuck a blade to it, it just disintegrated into powder. There were so many veins, it's so old. 
Wow. So it's, I don't know, somewhere around that 30,000. So this one is really, really cool with the help of um, Kevin Pope. So I found this, and of course it's volcanic ash. And so Mount St. Helens, 33 years, how exciting is that? <laughs> so I talked to him about it and he says, uh-uh, it is Mount Mazama, Crater Lake, 36,000 years old. Oh my gosh. Is that fun or what? Now, I really dig that, and so, literally. So, you know, my, my wines have a flavor that's very earthy and minerally, but it has a right to be. So it's very fun. You can go to different areas of the Walla Walla Valley and you'll get something very different and unique because of the soils that we have. So very fun to know and something you can ask others. Yeah, definitely. Cool story, huh? That is so cool. Yeah. I had never heard that before. Yeah. Oh, it's just fabulous. There are now, it's a, a gentleman, the gentleman who discovered these floods or who uh, may, hypothesized, spent his whole life trying to prove it. It finally was proven and accepted as a, as a tenant about maybe five years ago when he was 96. He died the next year. But now there are actual clubs called the Missoula Flood Clubs and they go, there's driving tours, you can go around Walla Walla. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of the Skyrockets? No. Oh, fabulous places to go drive by, climbing rocks, cool things that's all part of this flood. Wow. Good thing to learn, it's really fabulous. Another unique thing about Walla Walla. Definitely. Thank you for yeah, no sharing us. All right. Is there anything else? <laughs> that was excellent. I don't want to leave anything else out. No, that's fine. I was just really wanting to share that with you because it yeah. is very cool. Yeah. Melissa, did I leave anything no, else? No, I think we're good. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.